Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. You know, one of the joys of this ministry is hearing from so many of you that listen regularly to the Beeson Podcast and are blessed by it, and many of you write us and tell us this, and we would encourage you to do that. Uh, You can write to us at bdsinfo, bdsinfo, at samford, s-a-m-f-o-r-d, dot e-d-u. We'll receive your message with gratitude and be grateful that we can connect in this way. Now, today we get to hear a sermon. It's a sermon that was preached uh, a number of years ago uh, by a graduate of Beeson Divinity School named Connie Happel. When she was a student at Beeson, she lived in Huntsville, Alabama. I remember she would commute from Huntsville to Birmingham and never missed a class, a wonderful student. And you're going to hear from this sermon, a very fine proclaimer of the gospel. Uh, Dr. Smith, tell us about the sermon we're going to hear from Connie Happel. Connie preaches this sermon 16 days after Easter. She says, I'm still stuck on the Emmaus Road. So the text is Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35, in which I think she provides us some fresh insights from a very familiar story. The title of her sermon is, Alas, He Is Here. This line is taken from Connie's son's Alex, who had a tentative beginning in the neonatal intensive care unit as a newborn baby. So when he took confirmation classes and wrote his confession, in his testimony, his confession is that God is here. So Connie is going to do corrective surgery on Beth Midler's song, From a Distance, He is Watching Us in which she is going to say, no, God is not from a distance watching us. He is here. He is with us in the midst of us. Near the conclusion, Connie is going to bring it all around and take us to the eschaton. But throughout the sermon, she is weaving three strands throughout the fabric of this sermon. Number one, canonicity. She is explaining the text. Number two, illustration. She is biblically showing how the text relates to us today. And number three, she is applying the text. So I really think, Dean George, that this is a theological autobiography Mm -hmm. in which we hear her story Mm -hmm. and she tells our story that is informed by the biblical story. It is canonical. She does provide Mm -hmm. a panoramic survey of possible places Jesus may have stopped as he showed these two disciples why it was necessary for him to first suffer theology of the cross and then enter glory, theology of the glory. It's doctrinal, the fall, the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, the second coming, and the eschaton. And in the final word, there is this recurring phrase, Emmaus day is every day. The Emmaus Road is an everyday place for us. And she closes by letting us know that one day in the eschaton, when Christ came to us in incarnation, he came and tabernacled with us. 
But in the eschaton, we will go to him and tabernacle with him. Well, that's the gospel, isn't it? It is that. So we're going to hear a great communicator of the gospel, Connie Happel. She preached the sermon at Beeson Divinity School the year she graduated in 2006. So let's go to Hodges Chapel and listen to Connie Happel. Alas, he is here. I just want to take a moment to thank our Dean, Timothy George, for the opportunity to bring the Word of God to you this morning, and to Dr. House as well, to our amazing and wonderful faculty. Thank you. You are faithful in your calling. To my fellow students, as iron sharpens iron, you are just wonderful friends. And to those friends and family who are here today, I think you would say with me that there is joy in the journey. Now let's pray. Lord our God, our Heavenly Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Be thou our vision. It is in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that we make this in every prayer. Amen. You may wonder why some 16 days after the church around the world has declared, He is risen, He is risen indeed. I am still stuck here on the road to Emmaus. Well, I'm going to tell you the reason why up front. I think that the Emmaus day has a lot to do with the every day of ministry in the Christian church. Because there are times in life when our worlds, they seem to get very small. Now, one of the times in my life when my world got very small was January of 1991. The Persian Gulf War was just beginning, the first one. America's perched on the edge of their lazy boys, and they're watching CNN. And this was the time when my son Alex was born. Alex came into the world a few weeks early and did some time in the neonatal intensive care unit. And Alex was there in a unit that included seven other critically ill babies, their parents and their caregivers. My husband Eric and I spent a lot of time in that unit and always in the background was playing a soft pop rock station. And a song that was really popular at the time was called From a Distance by Bette Midler. And maybe some of you are old enough to remember that song. Not all of you. And I'm not going to sing it, but I'm going to give you the first couple of lines. From a distance, the world is blue and green, and the snow-capped mountains are white. From a distance, the ocean meets the stream, and the eagle takes to flight. And Miss Midler continues her aerial view of God's beautiful creation, and then she comes to her chorus. God is watching us. God is watching us. God is watching us from a distance. Now, when your world becomes very small, whether in times of war or family crisis, that's how you feel about God sometimes. Where is God? Is he merely watching us? 
I think that in our Emmaus Road story today, we find two disciples whose worlds have indeed become very small. The crucifixion and the events surrounding the death of Jesus Christ, Jesus, just, it just dashed their hopes. They were disappointed in their leaders. And strange things had been happening. You know, the day of the crucifixion, the sun went dark for several hours, and the temple in the curtain in the temple, it was ripped in two. And then there was the thing that morning with the women. They had been to the empty tomb, to the tomb, and they found that the tomb was empty. And they came back with this strange tale of meeting with angelic beings who said that Jesus wasn't there, but that Jesus was alive. What are they to make of all this? But, you know, our perspective on Luke's text is a little different. We get the aerial view, if you will. We are watching them with our omniscient narrator walking down the road between Jerusalem and Emmaus. And then we see coming behind them a third figure. And eventually he catches up. And his pace matches their pace. Now, we know that it is Jesus, don't we? But they have no idea. They don't know that this is Jesus. What caused their blindness? What's the deal here? Was it their grief? Was it their disappointment? Was it a change in Jesus' appearance? What was it that kept them from seeing Jesus? Well, the funny way that our text is written, it's entirely possible that their blindness had divine origin. So, the stranger engages them in conversation. What is this heated conversation that the two of you are having as you go along? And they stop, still sad, dead in their tracks. And Cleopas says, are you the only one? Are you the only one who doesn't know what's been going on in Jerusalem these days? Man, where have you been? Where have you been? And so, Jesus, what happened? What happened? And then they begin to tell Jesus of Nazareth about Jesus of Nazareth. Um... He was a prophet, mighty in word and in deed. Everyone knew it, and everyone had such high hopes for him. But the hopes for this pair were even greater, for they had hoped that he would be the one to redeem the people of Israel. And the events of the morning, the women, the empty tomb, I mean, what were they to make of all this? What does this mean? We want to laugh, don't we? We want to laugh at them, but we know we can't. We know we're not allowed to laugh at this pair because we have known the despondency of dashed dreams. We have known what it is like to be, be let down by our leaders because of their sinful behavior. We have known what it's like to stand by and watch injustice when there's not a darn thing we can do about it. And we have known the power and the finality of death ever since the creation of the world in the Genesis account they have been the great enemy sin 
injustice, and death. Now, I want to shift our focus to another group of people. They're sometimes called in church circles the C&E crowd, the folks that come on Christmas and Easter only. I wonder how many of them came and went from our church on Easter Sunday wondering what really happened in that empty tomb. Maybe. A week before, they watched a documentary on ABC, CBS, CNN, one of those, on the Gospel of Judas. And they wondered, did Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John get their story straight? Or maybe in their newspaper, like I did a few weeks before the church declared Easter, they read about Jesus walking on water and that there was a school of people who believe that maybe instead of walking on water, Jesus was really walking on a sheet of ice. Now, we want to laugh at that too, but you know what? Maybe. There is not enough evidence for their modern minds. And maybe there is not enough authenticity in the witness of the Christians who are regular churchgoers for their postmodern spirits. Mm. And come on, we've known blindness too, haven't we? You do not have to sit through too many of Dr. Bunch's ethics classes. Dr. Outlaw's pastoral care classes to realize that you are blind to a lot of the things going on around you and your world and Christ's presence in those places. And you don't have to sit through too many of Dr. Ross's or Dr. Thielman's lectures to realize that you are blind to many of the riches of Scripture. See, we can be just as blind as these disciples what we think Jesus is like, what we think he's doing in our midst, what we think he's going to do for us. The Apostle Paul said it so well. We see through a mirror dimly. This is indirectly. We just don't get a direct line of sight, do we? We see through a mirror. Emmaus is an everyday place for those of us who walk by faith. Now, Jesus, he can stand it no longer. You know, he told them what was going to happen, that he would be delivered up to death, he would die, he would be raised on the third day. He told them all that stuff. And, you know, he's a little frustrated and disappointed with them. His words to them are words of rebuke. How foolish you are, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had said. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things before he could enter his glory? And then... I can't even begin to imagine this. The Word of God, made flesh and resurrected, gives an exposition of the Word of God as they're walking along the road to Emmaus. Do you think that he began in Genesis 1 with God's beloved and beautiful creation and then the rebellious fall of humankind? But then there was that theme of God's persistent desire to redeem his fallen creation. Do you think he took a swing by God's covenant with Abraham? That all nations would be blessed through the descendants of Abraham. And God's special possession, Israel, a kingdom of priests and a light to the nations. 
maybe just for fun, he went by Deuteronomy 18 and reminded them that indeed, as they had already told him, the Lord was to raise up a prophet in the order of Moses. And maybe right by 2 Samuel 7, he went for God's promise to have an eternal king, not a temporal king, an eternal king on the throne of David and maybe just maybe he explained the events of the last few days which they themselves had endured by opening them up to the riches of the suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53 my servant the Lord said shall be exalted and lifted up many were astonished his appearance was marred beyond human likeness despised rejected a man of suffering Acquainted with grief, one that people hide their faces from. And maybe he talked with them about the reason for this suffering that he was wounded for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. But then the note of hope it is by his wounds that we are healed. And all of these things had to happen, Jesus said, so that the Messiah could enter his glory. So things are getting dark. The sun's about to set. Luke turns up the irony dial. And as the sun is beginning to set, we know that these disciples are just about to see the light. And so they gather at the table together. And Jesus takes the bread, and he blesses it, and he breaks it, and he gives it to his disciples. And in that instant, they see him for who he is. And in that instant, he's gone. They've been on a journey, haven't they? But they were not on the journey they thought they were on at all. They thought they were going from the disappointment of Jerusalem to the reconstruction of a decent life in Emmaus. But that wasn't where they were going at all. They were on a journey from blindness to sight, from hindsight to insight. They were on a journey from the heavy heart to the burning heart. So they get up from the table and they go over to the door and they pick up their Nikes and they start putting them on and they say, we're not our hearts burning within us as he opened the scripture to us on the road. Augustine experienced it under the teaching of Ambrose. Luther experienced it when he cracked open the riches of Paul's letter to the Romans. John Wesley experienced it in his conversion experience. And you have experienced the burning heart, too. You are going along in Dr. Matthew's Old Testament class, and you are taking notes so fast that your hand is beginning to cramp, and you just think you can't do it anymore. When all of a sudden you realize you are on the road to Emmaus. By the power of the Word and the Spirit, you have seen Jesus, and you know it. Because what we learn here at Beeson is true. All of the scriptures point to Christ. John Calvin called scripture our spectacles. The church has been given the gifts of the spectacles of scripture so that we might perceive and see God's revelation. 
But in this case, with these disciples, it kind of took a while for things to sink in, and I can really relate to that, can't you? But it was around the table, in the context of a fellowship meal, that the blindness loses its grip on these folks. Now, if you're from a tradition like my own Presbyterian tradition that sees the real spiritual presence of Christ in the sacrament, we see that as a means of grace, you may go to the Lord's Supper every time expecting an encounter with Christ. But if that doesn't jive with your understanding of the Lord's Supper, I believe this text still has a message for you. It is in table fellowship with one another that we are likely to catch a glimpse of our risen Lord. Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, wherever two or more of you are gathered in my name, there I will be also. But their journey doesn't stop there. They get those Nikes on and they get to Jerusalem. Does it matter that it's dark outside? Does it matter that they've done that seven-mile trek once that day? Does it matter that they called the female disciples babblers earlier that day? No, it just doesn't matter. Because when you catch a sighting of Jesus, you've just got to tell somebody, don't you? And so they get on their Nikes, they get back to Jerusalem, and guess what happens? When they arrive, others have seen him too. Others are testifying to his presence, and in an instant, there he is among them again. When you've caught a glimpse of Jesus, you've just got to tell somebody about it. Now, I started today telling you all about my son, Alex, who had such tentative beginnings in this world. Well, Alex made his own profession of faith. This is something we do in the Presbyterian tradition. He was in confirmation class, and Alex had an opportunity to write a written statement of faith. And I want to share something from Alex's testimony with you. A history book says that the initial thrill of religion is knowing that you're part of something greater than yourself The God described by Jesus goes a step further, saying not only are you part of God's grand plan, but that you actually matter to him. You can take it for granted in good times. You don't always realize it in bad times. Alas, he is there. Alas, a funny little word not often used in our modern English vernacular, a word that has its roots in the Latin for misery and weariness. Alas, a sigh, a confession of sorts that we just can't do this on our own. And yet a note of testimony, the doxology, he is there. He's there. Now, when I consider leaving these beautiful, hallowed halls of Beeson Divinity School, I have to ask myself, am I really prepared for that, to minister in a world that's full of sin and injustice and death? And I don't know, but the road to Emmaus reminds me of this, and it gives me confidence and courage. 
Things in the kingdom are simply not as they appear. Emmaus Day is every day. It's a place of hope, revelation, and resurrection life. And we, my friends, those of us who are graduating and those those who are still in the process here at Beeson, are truly privileged because when we leave this place, and even and most often in our everyday walks, we have the privilege of helping others put on the spectacles of Scripture, gathering them around the table in fellowship with one another, And we have the remarkable privilege of hearing them testify that although they were blind and although they were hurting, that they have seen a glimpse of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. We are so privileged. These aren't just tools in a toolbox, are they? They are the real presence of Christ if we will just look for them. Now, I told you about Miss Midler's song. God is watching us from a distance. I've just got to correct something about that. The incarnation, the resurrection, the ascension, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and 2,000 years of church history declare that Miss Midler's song is a lie. God is not watching us. God is with us. And if we'll put on our spectacles of Scripture, we will see that God is calling us to stand on tiptoe to see what he's going to do next. And so I'm turning now to John's first epistle in the third chapter. Beloved, beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. For all of these things had to happen so that the Messiah could enter his glory. In Christ, the word became flesh and made its dwelling place, its tabernacle among us. But John's revelation tells us that there is a day when we will tabernacle with Christ in glory. See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. He will wipe away their tears. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. See, look, it is happening. I am making all things new, said the Lord. Christ is risen. Christ has ascended and now sits in glory at the right hand of God the Father. And Christ will come again. Alleluia. Amen. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. 
You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.